Well, hello again. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here. It's my joy to extend to you a welcome again to our visitors. If you'd like to find out more information about our church, you can turn to the back cover of your order of worship. You can scan this QR code right here with your smartphone, and that actually connects directly to the staff. If you'd like to sit down and have coffee with me or a staff member and you're new here, that's the easiest way to do it. We would love to connect with you and tell you more about our church and our dreams for what we think God intends for us to do here uh, in Midlothian. And also, as we get ready to wrap up our time together in the book of Colossians, today's passage is found on uh, page 10 in your order of worship. It's also found on page 926 of that black Bible there in front of you in the chair. If you're here today and you do not have a Bible with you at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We would love for you to have that. Again, today's passage can be found on page 926 in that Bible there. So we are wrapping up our time together in the book of Colossians. This is the very end. This is the last part of the letter where Paul gives final instructions and he kind of introduces the team of who is with him, who has helped him. And it's really interesting. Paul has never met these people at this church in Colossae. And he most likely will never meet them. He doesn't appear by the most traditional records we have to have ever gotten out of this Roman prison. He got to preach the gospel to Caesar, and then it appears that he was executed for the crime of being a revolutionary officially, but for being a Christian unofficially. And so he never gets to see these people. And yet, in Christ, together, they're family, and he writes to them with such love and compassion. And so as he wraps up this text today, remember where we were last week, that in comparison to the Roman culture, which said that the family is run by the pater familias, the father of the family, the head of the family, the man, he got to decide how everything worked. He ruled the family. Paul says, actually, chapter 3, verse 15, the word of Christ, the Bible, God's word, rules in your lives. It gets to determine your various roles. And so in Christ, empowered by the gospel, in gratitude for what he's done for us, we all voluntarily for his glory submit to the various roles that God's word outlines for us. Now, as he's wrapping up, he gets to final matters, what he really wants them to leave with. If you remember, perhaps you haven't been here, False teachers had come into this church in this little town in Colossae, and they had gotten them to take their eyes off Jesus. They were offering something better than Jesus, some secret, mysterious knowledge that only they had. So if you really want to get in with God, wink, wink, nod, nod, we've got the way. Here's what it really is. This Jesus stuff, faith alone by grace, are you kidding me? you got to have more skin in the game than that. Here's what the real secret is. And so by focusing on these external behaviors, by focusing on these secret things that only they knew, what happened was they turned their focus inward and they started focusing on rituals and behavior and basically impressing each other, not really living to impress Christ. All those things, Paul says, are distractions away from Christ and they're distractions away from what really matter in the life of the church prayer, fellowship, evangelism, and worship. So with that, would you turn with me now? Colossians chapter 4, we read together verses 2 through 18. This is God's Word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open a door 
for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he, wel- if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heriopolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in words, that we might know you exactly as you wish to be known. And so, Lord, as we come before your word today, we do ask that once again you would, by your Spirit, open this text up to us, that we may see your truth for our growth and for our transformation. Lord, we pray that we would see Jesus in all his beauty and glory in every word, and they would long after him. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul here, in this passage, he calls them, reminds them who they are. And did you catch as we read through it, one of the things I really appreciate is how it's just so ordinary. I mean, he wraps up a couple things, and he starts listing a bunch of people to thank. I mean, how boring, right? I mean, if you're making up a religion, if you're writing a propaganda tract, you don't put this stuff in there. You, got, you, you have an economy of words. You really want to get your point across. But if it actually really happened, this is a real letter to a real church, this is what you do. You thank actual people. And so I, I, just, I just love how this is just so ordinary, just a letter from one pastor to a church that's struggling. And in this letter, Paul calls them to poignant prayer. He says, pray for my constrained evangelism. Let me give you some tips on your unconstrained evangelism, and let me remind you of the great team that's helping me that is for you. And that gets us to our theme for today. What we're going to kind of orbit around is this. On Jesus' team, support your coaches, watch out for good recruits, and care for your teammates. 
All right, so let's jump in together. So the first thing Paul talks about is praying for what matters. He begins with this command, and like most of his commands, it's plural. He says, y'all persist in prayer. Keep on praying. Perhaps the false teachers had downplayed the importance of prayer. We're not sure. But Paul here says, don't just pray. He says, be devoted to prayer. We might even say in our vernacular today, be identified as a prayer. See, false teachers can run rampant in a prayerless church, as proven in Colossae. So Paul says, hey, I've helped you identify these false teachers. I've helped you see how to purge them. Now let's try to prevent them by praying, y'all. Oh, dear Christians here today, I hope you're in a community group that encourages you to pray. I hope that in your own devotional life that you pray. That sounds kind of like, well, duh. But how often is it do we get down, if we have time, we'll read some scripture. Maybe we'll we'll read a devotional text. Maybe we'll read this little excerpt from the Puritans. Or maybe we'll read this, and then it's like, oop, I gotta go. Don't really have time to pray. Don't do that. Make sure you have time to pray. And maybe prayer is difficult for you. I know for me, maybe I have undiagnosed ADHD. I don't know, but I, my prayers are constantly disrupted by squirrels. Some of you may know what I mean. Some of you may not. Oh, dear God, I'm so grateful to be your son. Squirrel. Oh, wait, sorry. I'm so grateful for Jesus and the God squirrel. And you follow it. Like, how did my mind even get focused? Watch the road, Sawyers. If that's you, you know what? One of the things that has helped me is I write my prayers out in a journal. I don't know who Mr. Diary is, so I don't say dear diary. I say dear heavenly father, and I write my prayers out. It helps me stay focused. It helps me be devoted to prayer as Paul commends here. But Christians, find what works for you and pray. Be devoted to it. And know what Paul says here about prayer. He says prayer is peaceful war. It's an oxymoron, I know, but that's what he says. He says be watchful in it. This is the verb of what the porter did, the person who watched the gate of an ancient city at night and made sure no bad characters came in overnight to to do bad things in the town. He was watchful. Or soldiers out on patrol, the watchman would watch overnight to make sure no threats came in and killed or attacked these sleeping defenseless soldiers. Being watchful is something you do in fear out of a threat out there. And Paul says, actually, God's people are watchful in prayer, in hope and gratitude. Did you catch that? We watch because God is in charge and we have thanksgiving for that. See, gratitude for what God has done for us in the gospel will fuel our prayer life is what Paul is telling us. When we Christians live out of the grace of God, when we really get into our bones that though we were sinners, Jesus Christ came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, that he did that for us while we were yet sinners, that he didn't come to us and say, if you clean up, then I will save you. He said, you can't clean yourself up, so I will rescue you and then help you clean up. When we get that, we can't help but have gratitude. And that gratitude, Paul says, fuels your prayer life. And then Paul tells them what to pray for, starting in verse 3. First thing Paul says is, Paul says, pray for us. Paul, like the Mac Daddy Apostle Paul, who had so many skills in ministry, so used mightily of God, under inspiration, wrote so much of the New Testament, tells them, pray for me and for my team in Rome. Paul does not assume on God's working in him without prayer. 
He doesn't assume that prayer is an afterthought, like so often your pastor does. You ever been in a meeting in church world and thought, can we stop praying and get to work? Yeah, me too. See, Paul comes and Paul reminds us, hey, uh, guess what there, Isaac Newton? The real work happens before you say amen, not after. Pray for us. Never assume upon God moving just because. Pray. He also tells them, pray that God will open up a door for me to do the word, to declare the word. Paul is under house arrest. He, he's a preacher. He gathers people. That's what he does. He can't do that right now. And so I, I'm not sure why this is significant, but I, I, whenever the Holy Spirit does this, it's significant. This, this word declare there is the only time Paul ever uses that particular way to describe his ministry of public declaration because he was a preacher. He gathered people and he spoke publicly. There's a few instances of him doing some one-on-one stuff, but if you look at his ministry of the course of Acts, it was public declaration. And he's like, I'm under house arrest in Rome. I can't gather crowds. I don't know what to do. Pray that I will, I will know how to declare. Give me an opportunity. Pray that the Lord will give me an opportunity. Notice Paul's heart here. That's what he says pray for. Here's what I mean. I want you to imagine a scenario where for some reason you get arrested because of your faith. And you're going to write a letter to your church asking them to pray for you. For most people, what's the first item of request specifically? Get me out of here. Right? That's not what Paul prays for. Paul doesn't pray for release. Paul prays, give me an opportunity to preach the gospel while I'm in prison. That's his heart. He prays, I want to proclaim the mystery of Christ. Paul's, one of Paul's favorite phrases, especially in the book of Colossians, for what the gospel is. I want to remind you, he's kind of laid this out as his foundational principle for them against the false teachers. So let me remind you of Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 25 through 27. At the very beginning, Paul says this. Paul says, hey, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. It's actually y'all. Every one of these is plural. To make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what's the mystery? Which is Christ in y'all, the hope of glory. See, the false teachers came in offering mysteries, offering here's the real deal. Here's what really, how, here's what God really likes. Don't touch this, don't eat that, don't drink that, do this, and God will really be happy with you. This whole faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, <laughs> sure. No, you've got to have some skin in the game and sweat, and here's how you do it. Paul comes and says, there is no mystery for y'all to learn. You are the mystery. Christ in y'all, the hope of glory, that through the work of Jesus, God is tearing down the walls of division between people, especially Jew and Gentile. And through that unity, he's giving humanity significance again. We read that so glibly. I do, I know. And I forget how much in the ancient world, especially the Jews and the Gentiles, hated each other. 
The stuff that takes up our news feeds in the last month is not newsworthy in the ancient Roman culture. Like, duh, of course Jews are killing non-Jews and non-Jews are killing Jews. They hate each other. That's what they do. The only reason they're not doing it right now is because we have Roman um, soldiers in every major town stopping them from doing it. They hated each other. And the fact that this weird thing called the church was made up of Jews and Gentiles loving each other scared Rome. You can actually Google this. You can find Roman government authorities because they kept such good records. We have them fretting over what kind of power this subversive thing is that they can unify these people. They're a threat to the empire because they got it. This is a big deal. See, to the culture of Rome, one of the reasons they fell into worshiping the empire, which sounds so weird, I know. Like, why would you ever worship the government? But they did because Rome kind of did this. For the first time in human history, you had a culture that covered a whole bunch of different civilizations, united them into one people with a common purpose, and for the next 500 years, they conquered every piece of dirt they ever looked at. To be a Roman citizen was to be better than anybody else, especially the barbarians. To be a Roman citizen meant you had glory, you had significance. And so Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, in other words, the apostle to Romans, used language that spoke right to their cultural desires. Here's what I mean by that. I've talked about this book before. There's a book out there that has a great title. It's called Why in the World? Now, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Two Centuries? I love that title. Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Two Centuries? It's written by a scholar named Larry Hurtado, and it's a scholarly work. It's not very entertaining, but basically using primary sources, he proves that the reason people came to Christ in the first two centuries was two primary reasons. One, the promise of a loving God and the promise of eternal life. And in our text, Colossians 1.27 that we just read answers both of those cultural longings. And Paul here at the end is reminding them of that, that out of love, God sent his son to fulfill God's requirements for you. So when you place your faith and trust in him, you're adopted into this loving God's family and he then promises you eternal life, the hope of glory. And then in verse four, Paul says even more, here's what I want you to pray for. Pray that we can make it clear He says, Paul says, pray that I can preach the gospel even in my imprisonment in a way that these Romans that God brings to me will hear as good news. Pray that I will make it clear. I mean, this is Paul. He like invented the Romans road, right? He invented evangelism and he's saying, will you please pray that I will make it clear. He doesn't pray to change the law. He doesn't pray that maybe I'll get released. He doesn't pray, make people receptive. He prays, make me a better communicator. Y'all are free to pray that for your pastor at any time, by the way. And I know some of you desperately pray it already. So, <laughs> See, Paul understands one of the most loving things you can do. Do I have your attention? One of the most loving things you can do is to adjust yourself to how others listen rather than demanding that they adjust to how you speak. I'll say that again. Paul prays that because he understands one of the most loving things you can do is to adjust yourself to how others listen instead of demanding that they adjust to how you speak. Paul says, make me a better communicator. Help me to be clear. See, on Jesus' team, you support your coaches. 
You watch out for good recruits, and you care for your teammates. Next thing Paul does is Paul's speaking when it matters. So Paul turns from his constrained declaration of the gospel to their unconstrained evangelism. He's applying a big principle from last week. I want to remind you of Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. From last week, Paul said this, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So we got whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. That about covers it, right? There's not a lot of wiggle room after those three phrases. So Paul is now applying that principle right here in verse 5 and 6 of our passage today. He says, first of all, walk or live wisely to those outside. He literally says to those out. See, Paul's favorite way to refer to being a Christian was to be in Christ. So you're in, and he says there are those who are out, and walk wisely with them. In other words, non-Christians. Okay, how are they to live wisely before non-Christians? He gives us two ways. One, making the best use of the time, he says. Seizing opportunities. He assumes that they will be among non-Christians. And so in the course of actual life, opportunities will arise. Seize them. You know, part of our values that we have as a church are live, grow, thrive, and go. And that's part, this is one of our big values here of go. Just live life. Get out there and opportunities will arise. And one of the biggest hindrances that you and I have to evangelism is we want training, right? We want training because what if they ask a question I can't answer? I better study up. Oh, well, what if they ask this? I better study some more. And so we get all studied and studied and studied and studied, and we never actually use it because we're so afraid to actually have a conversation. I know, I've been there. You think I'm a professional, it's easier for me? It's not, okay? I do everything I can in a conversation to quit, to make sure no one ever asks, what do I do for a living? Because it just kills the conversation every time. They would would rather be say I'm an IRS auditor. I promise you, they would. They would treat you better. But You don't need training is what Paul's trying to say here. You don't need training on how to manipulate a situation to try to create an opportunity. Paul says just live your life. Be wise among outsiders and seize the opportunities as they arise instead of just letting them pass. I bet most of us in the room can sit back there and think of some time in the past month when there's been a clear opportunity with a non-Christian and we just let it pass, didn't we? See, The other thing happening in the context of our book is these false teachers, when they came in and they brought their behavior modification legalism, it made the Christians so focused on living for the opinions of each other that they didn't have any bandwidth, we would say, to be with non-Christians, to seize opportunities. They were too focused on making sure that other Christians weren't judging them. So much energy went into the church to, to do it right Because of the influence of these false teachers, there was nothing left for engaging those not in the church. So Paul says, walk in wisdom with non-Christians, not avoid non-Christians. And then verse 6 tells us the way to walk in wisdom with non-Christians. He says, hey, with gracious speech, seasoned with salt, giving answers. Gracious yet uh, poignant answers. Now when he says gracious here, he doesn't just mean nice. He doesn't just mean kind. It's actually literally with grace. So we could even say in grace. Paul wants them to declare clearly, graciously, but they also need to do it 
graciously as they declare clearly. You see what he's saying here? Paul assumes that in their interactions with non-Christians, probably because of the influence of the false teachers, he assumes that in their interactions with non-Christians, they will default to lacking grace. And so he tells them how to talk with grace. See, Paul reminds them there's just no place when you're talking to a non-Christian for arrogance, for patronizing, for judgmental. That's not the way Christians talk to non-Christians. Now, to make sure we don't mess that up, Paul says, now, I'm not saying be a pushover. I'm not saying don't ever say something that's offensive. Don't ever say something that's a theological, dogmatic truth. That's why he says, no, it's gracious, but it's also what? Seasoned with salt. See, people like me need to hear that because I am deep down, I am a coward, and I will default to being very gracious with you, and I will struggle to actually say something truthful that might get your ire up. And some people, you're like, yeah, I'll get some ire up. Point me at them. I think Paul's like, y'all need to get a little bit of grace, you know? So those of you who used to, uh, who were here when Marty was here, think of like, you know, Marty on one end who will say whatever it needs to be said in the moment and think of me on the other end who, who won't. Okay, that's what Paul's saying. Don't be either of those two guys. He's saying, in other words, be gracious and seasoned with salt. We would say, be a little salty today. Go there. It's okay. That's how you seize the opportunity and give a poignant answer. And notice, he says, answers. He assumes that Christians will become so involved with non-Christians that they will actually ask you serious questions about your life. And here's the secret. If you're actually being a good neighbor, if you're actually being a good friend to non-Christians, not just putting up a facade, but actually being real with them, significant issues are going to come up naturally in the relationship and they're going to ask you. So Paul says, seize the opportunity when it happens, answer graciously and yet truthfully when it does. Because on Jesus' team, you support your coaches, you watch out for good recruits, and you care for your teammates, which is how he wraps this up with some people who matter. So I'm not going to go through this whole list, but we, we just read it, but I hope you notice it's a motley crew of winners and losers. And if they get to be on Jesus' team, anyone can. No matter where you are in your journey of faith with Jesus, you can relate to someone on this list. I'm just going to highlight a few of them. In verse 7, we have the brother, Tychicus. He's a beloved brother. He's a fellow servant. It's actually the word for slave. He's a fellow slave. He's going to come. He's a faithful minister. He's going to tell you all about what's going on. In other words, he's going to come and give you a missionary report like we still do to this day. And it's going to encourage you. And you're going to find out what God's doing. He's a brother. Greet him. We have the slave in verse 9. Onesimus. In Greek, it's probably Onesimus. I just don't like the way that feels on my tongue, so I'm not saying it. Onesimus. It's interesting here, he calls Tychicus a slave, he calls Onesimus a brother, but they all knew who he was. Did you catch that little phrase, who's one of you? Onesimus was an escaped slave. He escaped from a guy named Philemon. Philemon owns the house in which this church meets where they're having this letter read right then. And Paul, in complete disregard for Roman laws, I mean, he's in prison already, what are they going to do, execute him twice, says, I am not turning this fugitive slave in. I'm going to send greetings to his former master and community. Hey, Onesimus is here with us, and he's a brother. He doesn't call him slave. Next, we have the quitter. Verse 10, Mark. 
Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, was with Paul and Barnabas very early on in Acts 12, one of the first missionary journeys. He abandons them in Acts 13, 13. Next trip, he wants to go with them again, and Paul's like, no. And Barnabas is like, yes. And so they have a big fight. Yes, the apostles had fights, early church. They had a big fight, huge split, and they Barnabas and Mark went one way. Paul got some guy named Silas, and they did another. It was a huge conflict. That's 12 years before this. And now, 12 years later, where's Mark? He is right there on Paul's team, and Paul's in prison. Oh, dear Christian, whatever that relationship is in your life that just is hopeless, it's never going to be fixed. It's just not true. It's never hopeless. There can be reconciliation in Christ. If a quitter like Mark is back on Paul's team, so too. And did you notice here what Paul has to say? Hey, when he comes to you, I've talked to him about you already. Welcome him. Perhaps for some reason that maybe he had a reputation for being a quitter and they were going to be mean to him. Or more likely, um, his best-selling novel had just come out. He interviewed this guy named Peter. You may have heard of him. And under the Holy Spirit, he wrote this best-selling book called The Gospel of Mark. It had just come out about three years before this, and the false teachers hated it. So they were probably like, that Mark guy could not be more wronger. Ignore everything about him. Paul says, when this guy comes, welcome him. He, he was a quitter, but now he wrote a gospel. God can use anybody. We have the shepherd, Epaphras, verse 12. Again, in the original, it's probably pronounced Epaphras. I hate that. I'm not going to say it. So he said, remember, the false teachers downplayed prayer. What does Paul upplay for this guy? He devotes himself to prayer, but it's not the word for devote. We say struggle in English. It's actually the word agonize. Epaphras, their pastor, agonizes in prayer for their maturity. The false teachers had come into the church and caused them agony. Epaphras is in agony for them. The contrast could not be greater. And then we have the drifting, verse 14, Demas. I almost left him off this list because he gets a bad rap. He's here with Paul at this point, though. He's on the team. He's supporting Paul, but he's got hidden struggles. We know this because in Paul's very last letter, 2 Timothy, he tells us Demas has abandoned Paul and abandoned the faith. Oh, dear Christian, if you're here today and you're struggling, don't struggle alone. Let someone in. Struggling by yourself can be a shipwreck. We have the facilitator. Verse 15, Nympha, the church in Laodicea meets in her house. She's not just a hostess. She's like the director of operations of this thing, okay? Every church service in the early church was like a banquet. So she has got to organize all this. She's got to keep the authorities at bay. She's got to keep the house ready. She is a big deal. You know, Paul gets a bad rap for being anti-woman, but yet here is another example of the so many you can find of a powerful, wealthy woman choosing to support Paul in his ministry. And Paul thanks her for it. And then he kind of just gives an offhand comment to his pastoral interns, hey, get back on your job description. And then he says, hey, remember my chains because prison is hard and he needs, please pray for me. And he ends with grace to you. And that's how we'll end as we wrap this up. Grace to you. Grace is not a thing. So often we think of it as a thing, don't we? Something we get. It's a substance somehow. It's not a thing. Grace comes only through a person. It's given to us 
in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we place our faith and trust in him, we are united to him. We are counted as righteous. And that whole situation is done not because we earned it, but because Jesus earned it. And so we get it by grace. Grace isn't a thing. Jesus is a person and we get him. So when Paul says grace to you, he is saying Christ to you. He is saying the gospel to you. It's free to us because it costs Jesus everything. So I just want to ask, are you on the team? Do you want to be on the team? The mystery that is Christ, that you could be part of God's ancient, most, eth- most ancient, multi-ethnic, polysymphonic, transnational community the world has ever seen. There's no divisions but unity and fellowship and love. You want to be on that team? That's what Paul offers here today. Man, in a world like ours that says unity is impossible, there's only oppressors and oppressed, and they always have to fight with each other, the church of Jesus Christ stands as a rock and says that is not true. Because we got all kinds of different people who love each other in unity in Christ. Are you part of that community? And give God gratitude and let that gratitude fuel your prayers. And if you're not part of that community, do you want to be? You can have that kind of community when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And instead of being out, you can be in. All by grace. And it's for you. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father God, that you have come to us when we would not and could not come to you. You healed the rift between us and you because we were sinners, unacceptable to you. And so by the work of your Son, you made us acceptable. And now in him, Father, we can be acceptable to each other. Lord, we pray that your gospel will continue to expand and change our war-torn world, and that you would bring peace by the blood of the cross. Lord, we pray for those here today, those of us who know you, that you would take us deeper into the cross, that you would see more and more of the beauty of Jesus and how great of a salvation we stand in, and that from a place of gratitude, we would be devoted to prayer. And Lord, we pray for those here today who don't know you, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for our new life, that you would be true to your promise to draw all people to him. Even now, Lord, would you do your great work of of calling people from death to life, causing them to believe and confess faith. Pray that you would do this, Father, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.